It's hard for me to see because the lights aren't quite on yet, but if you're here for View Weekend, can I take a look at where you are? Let me see who. Can you just kind of put a hand up and let me get a feel for where you're at? Oh, you're scattered all over. Um, how many of you have been with me at a camp before? This is kind of a reunion. Really? Well, good to have you all here. Wish I could come down and shake your hand, but maybe after. I love a reunion. You know what I'm saying? And I want to add my warmest welcome to all of you who are visiting our campus and hope that these are great days for you. We're honored to have you here. Thrilled that you are part of us for these precious 72 hours. And uh, this afternoon, I've tried to clear out my schedule. If you can drop by my office, any of you who... Um, have been with me before and we can kind of rekindle that friendship all right take your bibles if you would and turn to daniel chapter 2 daniel chapter 2 always a thrill for me to uh, to come to the word of god and daniel chapter 2 is where we will begin and in honor of the word of god would you stand with me please as i read it to you Daniel chapter 2, beginning at verse 19, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. And it is he who changes the times and the epochs. That's an age of time, an age of history. Here's the important part that I want to zero in on, okay? He removes kings and establishes kings. He removes kings and establishes kings. It is God and he alone. It isn't an election. It isn't a coup. It is God alone who establishes who will and will not rule over nations. Do you believe that? Turn one page over to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. You'll read here about the angelic watchers. Those are angels who carry out God's plan. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it. What is the it? The rule over people. It is God, the Most High, who bestows it, the rule over people, on whom he wishes and sets it over the lowliest of men. It is God who determines who rules over nations. Sometimes he chooses lowly men. That word lowly does not mean humble. The word lowly means despicable or despised. There are times when God will place even the most despicable people in authority over nations. You believe that? Let me show you one more. A New Testament reference so that you know that it happens even today Romans chapter 13 Romans chapter 13 Romans chapter 13 verse 1 look at the second sentence in that first verse Romans 13 verse 1 the second sentence in my Bible it begins with the little word for for there is no authority except from God 
and those which exist are established by God. What's the point? God and he alone determines who will rule over nations. Sometimes God will place even the most despicable individual in a place of authority over a nation. There is no doubt in my mind that God has placed Saddam Hussein in the place of highest authority right smack dab in the middle of beautiful downtown Baghdad. God did that. Let's pray together and then I'll tell you why he did that. Father, thank you that we have the opportunity this morning to come to your truth. And Father, we are living in an incredible time. How I envy these students the opportunity they have to grow up in a world that is changing daily. I pray that you will give us biblical insight into what we read in our headlines every morning. Living lessons to be learned from Saddam Hussein. We commit this time to you. Pray that you'll be glorified in it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now I can see you. Good. How many of you are age 18 or younger? Can I see your hands? Oh, look at that. You do not know how jealous I feel when I see that. If I could be 18 again, boy, what I would give for that. You do not realize how pushing 40, I hate to tell you, my wife, yeah, I'm going to be 40 in a year. You know that? My wife sat up in bed about two in the morning the other night, just sprung up in bed. I was sound asleep, whacked me across the head. Woke me up. I said, what was that for? She said, in a year, I'm going to be sleeping with a 40-year-old man. <laughs> I can't help it. You know, that's the way it is. If I could be 18, I would do it in a second. You do not realize the awesome, incredible privilege that is yours as a student so young in your life to be able to watch day by day unfolding before your eyes the most incredible events that have worldwide implications. It was 16 days ago that our world was rocked. It was about a quarter to four in the afternoon. Greg Beely, my good buddy, and I were over in the Mustang Corral sipping a Diet Coke together when we heard the word that there were tracer bullets being shot off and the 4th of July had come early to Baghdad and we ran in to be greeted by the news that the United States is now a nation at war. At war. What an incredible statement. Our nation is now at war. You know why that is so incredible to me? I have in my possession a little show and tell time, all right? You ever play this in school, a little show and tell, a little, uh, little object lesson? Let me, let me get uh, I got this little piece of paper out here, inspected by number 41, okay? Now, here it is. Do you know what this is? This. Ladies and gentlemen, is a piece, an authorized piece of the Berlin Wall. I am holding it in my hand. I showed it to one of our doubting students earlier. He said to me, that's ah, a piece of your driveway, come on. <laughs> this is a piece, an actual bona fide piece of the Berlin Wall. I have it in my possession. I will let you gaze upon it. You may not touch it after chapel. Do you know the date during which the Berlin Wall was breached? 
I went back into my archives and discovered that it happened on November 9th, 1989, 14 short months ago. Let me put you in a time warp and take you back to November 9th, 1989. Their banner cry around the world on news broadcasts was for worldwide peace. A new era was about to dawn. The stock market responded in bullish fashion, surging toward the rarefied air of the 3,000-point mark. The Defense Department began to cut back and cancel contracts because who needs weapons in a time of unprecedented worldwide peace? They had fireworks shows. There was dancing in the streets, speeches, celebrations, pomp and circumstances. We were about to embark upon what Bush has called now a new world order, a world characterized by peace. Fourteen months ago, fourteen months later, we are a nation at war. Who would have thought? It is changing at a cataclysmic pace. Peace, peace when there is no peace, right? Fourteen months later, on February 1st, 1991, that is this morning, if you picked up this morning's paper, you would have read these headlines. Quote, bombers pummel huge Iraqi column. Quote, fight to regain Kafji, chaotic and violent. Quote, Israeli restraint wears thin in missile attacks. Quote, U.S. expanding B-52 bombings. Quote, Iraqi leaders' tactics befuddle allies. All of that in this morning's Daily News. 14 months ago, who would have thought the possibility we would be a nation at war? Go back in your memory one month. Can you do that? One month ago today was New Year's Day. Many of you did what I did on New Year's Day. You parked yourself in front of your television set and watched the Huskies promptly blow out Iowa. Do you remember that? One month ago today. One month ago today, who knew what a Scud missile was? One month ago today, who knew what a chemical weapon was? One month ago today, who knew who General Norman Schwarzkopf was? One month ago today, who knew what a sortie was? One month ago today, who knew where Tel Aviv was? One month ago today, who knew where Saudi Arabia was? One month ago today, who knew what Kuwait was? One month ago today, who knew where the Persian Gulf was? One month ago today, who knew what an Arab coalition was? One month ago today, who knew how diabolically sinister and evil Saddam Hussein is? The proper pronunciation is Saddam. Say it with me, will you please? Accent on the second syllable. Saddam. Our president, for whatever reason, <laughs> insists upon calling him Saddam. Now, I have the profoundest respect for George Bush. I didn't think that he was simply unschooled in history. He couldn't be doing that by accident. So I checked it out, honestly. I went to a linguist to find out who was skilled in languages, to find out if there was any significance to this. And this is what I found, and this is the honest to goodness truth. The name Saddam means learned one or leader. It is a name of highest praise, of loftiest respect. A high positioned, learned leader, the sovereign over a nation. Saddam, learned leader. Saddam in Iraqi language, is a swear word. It's the truth.
It is, and I'm quoting my linguist friend here, the foulest, dirtiest, most profane insult that could ever be uttered in the Arab world. I'm sure when he's sitting 300 feet underground in that bunker watching CNN, hearing our president talk about Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein, he is on a borderline coronary. In one month since the Rose Bowl, our vocabulary has changed, our interest in world events has changed, our perception of war has changed, our understanding of geography has changed, our fear of the future has changed, our sense of national security has changed. All of that has changed in one month. What a time to be alive. What a difference a day makes. You are sitting right in the middle of it all. Right in the middle of it all. And in some ways it's a flashback to my own college days, but with some very important differences. For most of you, this is the first war you have ever been exposed to. For me, and those of us a little bit older, this is the second war that I have been exposed to. I sat where you were sitting during the Vietnam War. There are notable differences and distinctions. This war has instant worldwide coverage. You are watching them put on their gas masks as it happens. Vietnam was not that way. You are witnessing an unprecedented military force of unbelievable proportion. There have already been, as of one hour ago, 34,000 sorties flown into Iraq and Kuwait. A sortie is one trip by a plane doing his bombing run and coming back. 34,000 of those, the Vietnam War didn't come close to that. We are right now engaging the fourth largest military machine ever assembled by one nation. This is no third-rate army. This is the fourth largest army ever assembled by a leader. And Saddam Hussein sits on top of it all. Vietnam was not that way. There are more troops combined right now in a very constricted and confined theater of operation, over one million people right now, that full-on eclipses the Vietnam War. Right now. There is a war right now being fought over territorial control of oil, and the interdependent economies of nations around the world hang in the balance. That was not true of Vietnam. Right now, Israel, God's chosen people, the apple of his eye, a neutral, non-aggressive civilian population is under attack. That was not true in the Vietnam War. There is a feeble attempt afoot to split a very tenuous Arab coalition. That was not true in the Vietnam War. We are engaged in a military conflict that has worldwide implications and repercussions which may be felt for decades to come. That was not true in the Vietnam War. And there are some profound, lasting lessons that you and I need to learn from this. Lessons that were not true in the Vietnam War. I want to take the remainder of our time and focus on a couple of those. There are some principles that are clearly illustrated through the conflict in the Persian Gulf that you and I need to be aware of. These are undeniable facts. Biblical principles that are put on public display as never before. And it's unthinkable, frankly, that we as Christians should read our papers or watch CNN and miss what is going on behind the scenes. So we'll start in and we'll cover as many of these as time will permit. Lasting lessons to be learned from the influence of Saddam Hussein. Number one, 
There is a conflict being waged that is far greater, has far greater repercussions, has far greater implications than just the battle that's being fought out in the Arabian desert. We are locked right now, I hope our national leaders realize this, into a spiritual warfare that has worldwide implications, focusing, of course, right now upon the Persian Gulf. A spiritual battle that is unseen, a spiritual battle in a realm that is not immediately sensitive to us, but sometimes a spiritual battle will bubble up to the surface, and that is happening, I am confident, in the Persian Gulf. There are two passages in the Bible that refer specifically to Satan. They are the most descriptive passages. One of them describes Lucifer before he fell. The other describes Lucifer as he was rebelling. The first is found in Ezekiel 28. The second is found in Isaiah chapter 14. It is very interesting to me, listen carefully, that both of those passages, Ezekiel 28, that describes Lucifer before he rebelled, and Isaiah 14, that describes Lucifer as he rebelled, both of those passages are immediately applicable to a national leader who was indwelt and empowered by Satan himself. These passages do not begin talking about Lucifer. They address the world leader and then take us behind the scenes to the real power behind the throne. In Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12, you will read this. Son of man, Ezekiel, that is, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre. The king of Tyre was a political leader, a human being. Ezekiel was addressing his comments to a national leader. But as you begin to read through that passage, you realize that he is taking us behind the scenes to the supernatural power behind the throne. Verse 12 goes on to say, you had the seal of perfection. You were full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Is that true of a political leader, the king of Tyre? Maybe, but look at verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Is that the king of Tyre? No. Look at verse 14. You were the anointed cherub who covers. Is that a human being? What is a cherub? An angel. An angel. Planted firmly in his heart. Satan was controlling the king of Tyre. As a tool in the hand of Satan to perpetrate his diabolical schemes. In Isaiah chapter 14... A very similar scenario in Isaiah chapter 14, you will read in verse 4 that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon, a human being, a political leader, a national ruler. But then as you continue to read, you will get to verse 12, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. If you have a King James Bible, the name Lucifer is written right in. Who was empowering the king of Babylon? A fallen angel by the name of Lucifer. There is no doubt in my mind that what is happening today in the Persian Gulf is far more than a military conflict. What is happening in the Persian Gulf is at its core 
a manifestation of a spiritual battle of unprecedented proportion taking place behind the scenes. There is no doubt in my mind that Saddam Hussein is a man controlled, motivated, and empowered, if not by Satan, then certainly by demonic forces. How else do you explain the fact that he gasses his own people? How else do you explain the fact that he would be willing to destroy his entire nation rather than surrender? How else do you explain the fact that he has imposed his rule on innocent people through the means of intimidation, torture, rape, maiming, and butchering civilians in the streets? How else do you explain the fact that he is blindly motivated by his own lust for power? How else do you explain the fact that he is seen praying on worldwide television just moments before he hurdles explosives over innocent civilians hundreds of miles away in the little land of Israel? How else do you explain the fact that last week he executed his own Minister of Air Defenses and the head of the Iraqi Air Force? How else do you explain the fact that he pumped crude oil into the Persian Gulf, some estimates as high as 12 times the damage done by the Exxon Valdez debacle? How else do you explain the fact that he has coined a new phrase or is responsible for it, environmental terrorism? How else do you explain the fact that he has called for terrorists around the world to strike down that infidel and great Satan, the United States? How else do you explain the fact that he has repeatedly avowed his hatred for an eventual annihilation of Israel? I wholeheartedly, lest there be any doubt, support our troops in the Persian Gulf. God bless them. This is more than just as the protesters would want us to believe, blood for oil. We are coming head to head with a satanically motivated regime of evil, reminiscent of the days of Adolf Hitler, that must be stopped. God forbid he'll be allowed four more years to develop nuclear capability. Last week in Time Magazine, dated January 28th, in an article entitled, quote, The Devil in the Hero, you will read these words. Many Arabs despise Saddam. They know that in his blood-drenched career, Saddam has acted truly, not metaphorically, satanic. It is reported credibly that in the evening before bed, he has been in the habit of watching a video of an execution that he ordered preferably one carried out that day. He is apparently conscienceless, a whimsical murderer. It's vital that you and I understand what is happening behind the scenes. Far more than a military conflict, we are engaged in a hand-to-hand -hand spiritual conflict of worldwide implication. That's why I would join in sympathy my good buddy Rob Provost who wants me to remind you that every night in the dorm each evening you have the opportunity to engage in prayer the strategic prayer initiative for the events taking place in the Persian Gulf this has got to be fought not just with stealth fighters but fought on our knees and our troops over there desperately need our support that God's will will be done in that troubled part of the world don't you agree they've even set up a, a phone line 
where people in the community can call in prayer requests and we as a campus can unite behind our troops and behind our government in praying for God's will to be done. This is a spiritual battle and the Master's College can be right on the front line. The second lesson we learn from Saddam Hussein is this. The heart of man is desperately wicked. The heart of man is desperately wicked. You are seeing lived out every day the manifestation of the total depravity of you and me. We are seeing people at their worst. Jeremiah 17 verse 9, Jeremiah said this, The heart is more deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? The events taking place in the Persian Gulf are magnified admittedly because they are on the evening news every night. But need I remind you that as evil as Saddam Hussein appears, the same atrocities that he has perpetrated in the Middle East happen in our own country every day. Every day. This won't make CNN. But if I could take you in my car 30 miles north of here to the city of Palmdale where I live, you would have read this morning in the Antelope Valley Press these headlines this morning. Quote, 76-year-old Little Rock man stabbed to death in his own home. Is that any different than what Hussein did in Kuwait? Quote, Gun seized in gang crackdown. Is that any different than the precision bombing that our troops are engaged in trying to destroy the vast arsenal of Saddam Hussein? Quote, two accused of attacking an Iranian. A hate crime. An innocent individual walking down the street but because he is of Iranian extraction, he was brutally attacked in the streets of my city. Is that any different than Kuwait? Quote, woman accosted outside Palmdale laundromat. Are we any different? I think not. Some of you sighed a bit, sighed, when I mentioned that before he goes to bed at night, he's in the habit of watching a video of an execution that he ordered. Let me ask you a question. What do you watch before you go to bed at night? In Valencia, in case any of you are interested, there's a new movie opening tonight. Have you heard about it? It's called Popcorn. It opens tonight. Popcorn. Here is how they publicized this movie. Quote, the best reason in a long time to leave the lights on. Quote, 
Fifteen years ago, he murdered his family on stage and burned down the theater. Tonight, he's back for an encore. Quote, popcorn, buy a bag, go home in a box. That's asinine. Who'd pay movie to watch that? Uh, pay money to watch that? Some of you have. Some of you are bloodthirsty, blood-sucking people who look so nice when you walk into chapel with your crisp, clean clothes on. But at night, what do you pump into your brain before you go to bed? Executions? In Dolby stereo sound? <laughs> What's the difference? What is the difference? Popcorn opening at a theater near you. At the core of our being, my friends, we are no different. The same impulses that pulsate through the veins and arteries of Saddam Hussein pulsate through mine. It is only by the grace of God that he has placed enough restraint upon me manifested the wickedness of my heart to the same degree he has, but the same heart beats in my breast. And apart from the influence of the Holy Spirit restraining demonic influence in my own life, heaven only knows what atrocities I am capable of perpetrating if given the chance. I'm no better than he, and neither are you. Total depravity. My heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. I, I hate to burst your bubble, but it is utterly impossible for men to simply dwell together in peace. It is impossible. We have been trying for the four thousand, five thousand year history of the human race to simply live together in peace. It is virtually, it is absolutely impossible. John Lennon was absolutely right when he coined the phrase and wrote the song, give peace a chance. But he was absolutely wrong in thinking that man, by his own human effort, can ever achieve it. The United Nations can't do it. A post-war Mideast Peace Conference won't do it. The combined efforts of highly skilled and expertly trained diplomats around the world won't achieve it. It's hard enough just to get along with your roommate. There's only one way lasting peace will be achieved. And that is through the transforming power of Jesus Christ in a man's heart. That's the only way. But again, I hate to burst your bubble. That transforming heart through the power of Jesus Christ will never happen on a global scale. Never. The way that leads to destruction is broad and there are many on it. And the way that leads to life is narrow and there are few on it. There is not going to be any worldwide global revival. It will not happen. Based upon sheer numbers, we lose. 
We will always be a minority religion. We will always be living in a world that is ripped and fractured and tattered and torn by war. And even in the millennium, Jesus will have to rule with a rod of iron. You are learning in the most graphic way possible the raw reality of the total depravity of man. And there is a third lesson. A third lesson to be learned from this is the incredible, this is a contradictory statement, but I don't know how else to expand it to the proportion that I want you to understand it. An incredible credibility of the Bible. Contradiction in terms, I know, incredible credibility. But we are seeing the Bible established as credible in the most incredible way. If you ever doubted the authority and the credibility of the Bible, you ought to bury such doubts forever now. Because the credibility of the Bible is being reverberated through every headline that we read. Let me give you three examples quickly. The centrality of Israel in this whole conflict. What does Israel have to do with Kuwait? Why attack an innocent people? Oh, you can't just give me the line that it is a military strategy because he wants to split the Arab coalition. If that was true, then all he'd have to do is target Israeli military installations. He's not going after Israeli military installations. He's going after civilian populations. Why? Because he is consumed with the demonic hatred of Israel. Israel is mentioned 2,539 times in the Bible. I know I counted them yesterday. 2,539 times. Do you realize that Israel in 70 AD as a nation was obliterated? Do you know that as a nation Israel went out of existence in 70 AD? And those people were scattered to the four winds of the world. Israel did not exist as a nation after AD 70. Who would have thought that after 1900 years of wandering around the world, Israel would retain its national identity? Who would have thought that? Who would have thought that after centuries of hatred, persecution, and countless atrocities committed against them, the spirit of Israel would never be broken? Who would have thought that? Who would have thought that after suffering for 1900 years as a displaced people, we would witness in 1948 the miraculous rebirth of that nation. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that every nation who has ever set itself against Israel has suffered or will suffer a most humiliating defeat, including Saddam Hussein? Who would have ever thought that today a piece of real estate a mere 260 miles long. 260 miles long. That little piece of real estate would be the focal point of every single nation around the world. Who would have thought? There is only one book in existence that thought. The Bible. The Bible. It is, after all, in the Bible, Genesis 12, verses 1, 2, and 3, where God said, I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation, and whoever blesses you, I will bless, and whoever curses you, I will curse. It is only the Bible that guaranteed the national identity of Israel, and history has proven it right. Good guess. 
that hundreds of years ago, a guy with a piece of parchment and a quill would predict that a little land 260 miles long would be the focal point of human history. A land that didn't exist for 1900 years, but he was right. Coincidence? How about the possibility, the credibility of end time events? You read in Daniel chapter 9 of a, you'll permit the term, peace conference, which will serve as the platform for the Antichrist to seize power, after which he signs a seven-year treaty guaranteeing peace where? Vietnam? The Middle East, with Israel at the center of it. Today we can see how such a conference could indeed take place. We don't want any linkage in this country between Kuwait and a post-war Mideast Peace Conference. But a Mideast Peace Conference is on everybody's lips and in everybody's mind and the first item on the agenda after the guns fall silent. And it's the Bible that predicts that it will be that kind of conference out of which the Antichrist will seize control. For the first time in history, such a statement is credible and believable. You will read in Revelation 9:18 that one-third of all mankind was killed by these plagues. Who would have thought that believable until we heard of the advent of biological and chemical war uh, warfare? You will read in Revelation 6:12 that the sun became black. How can the how can the sun, that vast glowing sphere, be turned black? We never would have believed it until somebody flooded the Persian Gulf and threatened to light it on fire. And now we can understand how the sun could be turned black. You will read in Revelation 16:4 that rivers and springs will become blood. How could that be possible? But then we hear about Saddam Hussein vowing to turn the Middle East into a bloodbath. Prophetic end time events suddenly leap into crystal clear clarity with their credibility as we understand that now the stage is set for these atrocities to happen. Or how about the certainty of Armageddon? It is predicted in Revelation 19, 19, and I saw the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war. How many nations are involved in this battle in the Persian Gulf? A multinational force assembled together. Is that Armageddon? No way. But is that a forerunner of Armageddon? Very possibly. Does it show how the nations of the world can unite together in one arena of battle? Absolutely. What is a living lesson to be learned from Saddam Hussein? Just this, the Bible is a book of absolute truth. Fourthly, we've learned from this that our lifestyles are so unbelievably fragile. Our lifestyles are so unbelievably fragile. Events can change within a 24-hour period of time. August 2nd, 1990 will forever be riveted in people's memory as a guy came out of nowhere to seize control of an innocent country and throw our economy and our world into absolute chaos. Do you know why God has allowed Saddam Hussein to rule in power? I can't read God's mind, but I've got one educated guess. 
we're seeing lived out right before our eyes the truth found in Luke chapter 12. Don't turn to it, just listen. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus gave this parable beginning in verse 16. The land of a certain rich man was very productive. He began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and I will store all my grain and my goods. That's America, folks. Consumptive, materialistic, sensual, that's us on an economic binge. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. That's our nation, ladies and gentlemen. That is us. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. A party society exploiting every sensual desire we can ever dream about or fantasize. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? You who laid up treasure for yourself are not rich toward God. Why has God allowed Saddam Hussein to come to power? I can give you one good reason. God is using that man to chasten America. And boy, do we deserve it. What's worse? What Saddam Hussein did to two million innocent Kuwaitis or what we have done in America since 1973 to 25 million unborn babies. If God judges him and does not judge us, then God owes him an apology. perversion, the immorality, the homosexuality, the drug abuse, the alcohol use, the incidence of incest and abuse throughout America that is cataclysmic in its proportion. And you think that we will somehow escape the judgment of God? As our president said, we are the most hedonistic, materialistic, and consumptive generation ever to make its appearance on planet Earth. And Time Magazine said this, and this may well be, long after Saddam Hussein is dead and gone, how God will choose to chasten America. Quote, the United States will win the battle but lose the war. Arabs have declared jihad against America. Jihad. Holy war. You Westerners are keen to live. We Arabs are keen to die because we go to paradise. Somebody's in for a big surprise. As the United States destroys Iraq, it will give birth to the jihad that will destroy the West. We will win the battle in Iraq. But our Achilles heel is the threat of terrorism for which we have absolutely no defense. It may well be that God has chosen this moment in history to begin to shake this country to its knees. All it will take is a couple of planes to be blown out of the sky. Two more lessons. Number five. The time has come. I'm talking to you now as students. The time has come for you and me to be informed about world events as never before. We can no longer hide our heads in the sand. First Peter 3.15, Peter challenged us to always be ready to give an account for the hope that is within us. And let me simply say that that is why the Master's College exists. The Master's College exists because you need to know more than the Bible. We are living in a day where the issues now are far more complex than they've ever been before. It is not enough just to go to a Bible institute and learn the Bible. Do you know that? 
For you to be credible and have a message for the world today, you need to know something about economics. You need to know something about history. You need to know something about geography. You need to know something about politics. You need what we have come to call here in the hallowed halls of the Master's College a Christian liberal arts education. That is why we exist, and that is why we extend to you an, inv an invitation to come and spend four years of your life here, because if nothing else is true about us, one thing is absolutely true. We, down to a faculty, administrator, and staff member, we are committed to educating you and equipping you to face a confusing world with a relevant, credible message so that they'll sit up and listen to us. That's why I'm here and have been for over eight years and will continue to be. That is what the Master's College is all about. And then there's one more lesson to which I draw your attention. Let us never escape this fact. Ready? Our God is an awesome God. He is not threatened by Saddam Hussein. God has not lost any sleep over what's happening in the Persian Gulf. Now don't misunderstand what's going on. Saddam Hussein has not declared war against the United States. He says he has, but he hasn't. He has not declared war against the West. He claims to have, but he hasn't. He has not declared war against Israel. He claims that he did, but he didn't. He has declared war, Saddam Hussein has, to the plans and purposes of Almighty God. He is at the forefront of a movement called Jihad, holy war, motivated by his hypocritical worship of the God Allah, a demonic spirit, the God of Islam, a demonic spirit who exalts aggression, a demonic spirit who rewards bloodshed, a demonic spirit who tolerates torture, a demonic spirit who encourages terrorism. Saddam Hussein has declared war against God. Do you think God's worried? We pray that God is pleased to use our allied forces to halt this spread of demonic oppression throughout the world. But I can assure you that God is not limited to our allied forces. Let me bring this chapel to a close by simply reading you the second psalm. Don't turn to it. I don't want you to be distracted. Just listen. This is God's perspective on the war in the Persian Gulf. What fools the nations are to rage against the Lord. How strange that men should try to outwit God. For a summit conference of the nations has been called to plot against the Lord and his Messiah, Christ the King. Come, let us break his chains, they say, and free ourselves from all this slavery to God. But God in heaven merely laughs. He is amused by all their puny plans. And then in fierce fury, he rebukes them and fills them with fear. For the Lord declares, this is the king of my choice, and I have enthroned him in Jerusalem my holy city 
His chosen ones reply, I will reveal the everlasting purposes of God, for the Lord has said to me, you are my son, this is your coronation day, today I am giving you your glory. Only ask, and I will give you all the nations of the world, rule them with an iron rod, smash them like clay pots. Saddam ought to be trembling in that bunker of his. O kings and rulers of the earth, listen while there is time. This is God's message to Saddam Hussein. Serve the Lord with reverent fear. Rejoice with trembling. Fall down before his son and kiss his feet before his anger is roused and you perish. I am warning you. His wrath will soon begin. But then to us, he says, but oh, the joys of those who put their trust in him. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above in wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer, please? Every head bowed, every eye.